feast fight. Gospel of John chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles looked back to Israel's journey through the wilderness and looked forward to the promised kingdom of Messiah. The Jews lived in booths made of branches to remind them of God's providential care of the nation for nearly 40 years. Following the Feast of Trumpets and the Solemn Day of Atonement, Tabernacles was a festive time for the people. The temple area was illuminated, illumined by large candlesticks that reminded the people of the guiding pillar of fire. And each day the priest would carry water from the pool of Shalom and pour it over or pour it out from golden vessels, reminding the Jews of the miraculous provision of water from the rock. The feast may have been a jubilant time, For the people, but it was a difficult time for Jesus, for it marked the beginning of open and militant opposition to him and to his ministry. Ever since he had healed the paralytic on the Sabbath day, Jesus had been targeted by the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. You can find that in John 7. In, in many of the different verses there, and also note John 8, verses 37 and 40. He remained in Galilee where he would be safer, but he could not remain in Galilee and also observe the feast. John 7 has three time divisions before the feast in verses 1 through 10, in the midst of the feast, verses 11 through 36, and on the last day of the feast, 37 through 52. So the responses during each of those periods can be characterized by three words, disbelief, debate, and division. Before the feast in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, in regard to disbelief, many bore other children with Joseph as their natural father, Matthew 13 through Mark and also Mark chapter 6. So Jesus would have been their half-brother. It seems incredible that his brothers could have lived with him all those years and not realize the uniqueness of his person. Certainly they knew about his miracles, since everybody else did. Having been in the closest contact with him, they had the best opportunity to watch him, to test him, yet they were still unbelievers. I hear were men going up to a religious feast yet rejecting their own Messiah. How easy it is to follow tradition and miss eternal truth. The publicans and sinners were rejoicing at his message, but his own half-brothers were making fun of him. These men certainly had the world's point of view. If you want to get a following, Use your opportunities to do something spectacular. Jerusalem would be crowded with pilgrims, but this would give Jesus the ideal, quote, platform to present himself and win disciples. No doubt that the brothers knew that the multitude of disciples had deserted Jesus. See John 6, verse 66. This was his opportunity to recoup his losses. 
So Satan had offered a similar suggestion three years before in Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus had already turned down the crowd's offer to make him king in verse 15. And he was not about to yield to them in any way. Celebrities might ride to success on the applause of the crowd, but God's servants knew better. By doing miracles during the feast at the official city, Jesus could muster a crowd, reveal himself as Messiah, and overcome the enemy. The suggestion, of course, came from hearts and minds blinded by unbelief. And this unbelief had been prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 8, where it says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. It was not uh, the right time for Jesus to show himself to the world. See John 14, 22. One day he shall return and every eye shall see him. Revelations 1, 7. We have noticed that our Lord lived on a divine timetable that was marked out by the Father. We can find that all the way throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus was exercising caution because he knew that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. Though they were, quote, religious leaders, they were a part of the world the world that hated Jesus because he exposed their evil works. By his character and his ministry, he revealed the shallowness and emptiness of their feudal religious system. He called the people back to the reality of life in God. History reveals that the religious system often persecutes the very prophets of God who are sent to save it. Some versions do not have the word yet in John verse chapter 7, verse 8, but its absence does not alter the thrust of the statement. Jesus was certainly not lying or being evasive. Rather, he was ex- exercising sensible caution. Suppose he told his brothers his plans and they told somebody else. Could the information possibly get to the leaders? I am going to the fest when the right time comes, is what he said. After his family had gone, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he went undercover, so to speak, so as not to call attention to himself. In our Lord's actions, we see a beautiful illustration of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Father had a plan for his Son, and nothing could spoil that plan. Jesus did not tempt the Father by rushing to the feast, nor did he lag behind when the proper time had come for him to attend the feast. It requires spiritual discernment to know God's timing. Each and every one of us need to know that. In the midst of the feast, in the chapter 7, verses 11 through 36, note that this public debate about the Lord Jesus involved three different groups of people. 
first were the Jewish leaders, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and were attached to the temple ministry. This would include the Pharisees and the chief priests, most of whom were Sadducees, as well as the scribes. These men differed theologically, and they agreed on one thing, their opposition to Jesus Christ and their determination to get rid of him. The exceptions would be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. See John 19, verses 38 through 42. The second group would be the people in John 7, 12, verse 20, and also 30 through 32. This would be the festival crowd that had come to Jerusalem to worship. Many of them would not be influenced by the attitude of the religious leaders at Jerusalem. As we note in John 7, verse 20, that the, quote, the people were amazed that anybody would want to kill Jesus. They were not up to date on all the gossip in the city and had to learn the hard way that Jesus was was considered a lawbreaker. He was considered a lawbreaker by the officials. The third group was composed of the Jews who resided in resided in Jerusalem, John 7, verse 25. They, of course, would have likely sided with the religious leaders. The debate began because, began, excuse me, before Jesus even arrived, arrived at the city and it centered on his character. See John 7, 11 through 13. The religious leaders kept seeking Jesus while the crowd kept arguing whether he was a good man or a deceiver. He would have to be one or the other because a truly good man would not deceive anybody. Jesus is either what he claims to be or he is a liar. But when Jesus began to teach openly in the temple, the debate shifted to his doctrine. See John 7 verses 14 through 19. Character and doctrine go together. Of course, it would be foolish to trust the teachings of a liar. The Jews were amazed at what he taught because he did not have any credentials from their approved rabbinical schools. So since he lacked this proper, quote, proper accreditation, his enemies said that his teachings were nothing but private opinions and not worth much. It's often been said that Jesus taught with authority while the scribes and Pharisees taught from authorities, quoting all the famous rabbis. Jesus explained that his doctrine came from the Father. He had already made it clear that he and the Father were one in the works that he performed. See John 5 verse 7 or verse 17, actually, and in the judgment that he executed, John 5, verse 30. Now he claimed that his teachings also came from the Father, and he would make that astounding claim again in John chapter 8. When I teach the Word of God, I can claim authority for the Bible and not for all my interpretations of the Bible. Jesus rightly 
could claim absolute authority for everything that he taught. But does not every religious teacher make a similar claim? How then can we know that Jesus is teaching us the truth? By obeying what he tells us to do. God's word proves itself true to those who will sincerely do it. The British preacher F.W. Robinson said that obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. John 7, 17 literally reads, If any man's willing to do God's will, he shall know. So this explains why the Jewish leaders did not understand Jesus' teaching. They had stubborn wills and would not submit to him. See John 5.40 Is our Lord suggesting here a pragmatic test for divine truth? Is he saying try it? If it works, it, it must be true. And thus suggesting that if it does not work, it must be false. This kind of a test would lead to confusion for almost any cultist could say, I tried what the cult teaches and it works. No, our leaders, or excuse me, no, our Lord's statement goes much deeper than that. He was not suggesting a shallow, quote, taste test, but rather the deep personal commitment of the person to truth. The Jews depended on education and authorities, received their doctrine secondhand, but Jesus insisted that we experience the authority of true, of tr- the truth personally. The Jewish leaders were attempting to kill Jesus, yet at the same time they claimed to understand God's truth and obey it. This proves that an enlightened and educated mind is no guarantee of a pure heart or a sanctified will. Some of the world's most worst criminals have been highly intelligent and well-educated people. Satan offered Adam and Eve knowledge, but it was knowledge based on disobedience. Genesis 3 verse 5. Jesus offered knowledge as the result of obedience. First the yoke of responsibility, then the joy of knowing God's truth. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said it perfectly when he said, When men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine and that it is the teaching of God. If we really seek God's will, then we will not worry over who gets the glory. All truth is God's truth, and God alone deserves the glory for what he has taught us. No teacher, no preacher can take credit for what only can come from God. If he does go after the glory, then it's proof that his teaching is self-generated and not received from God. This is the origin of many cults and church splits. Somebody, quote, invents a doctrine, 
takes credit for it and uses it to divide God's people. The first debate was with the Jews, but the visitors to the city entered into the discussion in John 7, verse 20. Jesus had boldly announced that the leaders wanted to kill him because he had violated the Sabbath and then claimed to be God. See John 5, verses 10 through 18. The Orthodox Jews broke the Sabbath laws when they had their sons circumcised on the Sabbath. So why could he not heal a man on the Sabbath? Why go ye about to kill me? The visitors, of course, did not know that their leaders were out to kill Jesus, so they challenged his statement. But their reply contained a serious accusation that Jesus had a demon. This was not a new accusation, for the leaders had said it before. See Matthew 9, 32, 10, 25, 11, 18 through 19, and chapter 12, 24. You must be lazy to think that anybody wants to kill you. Our Lord used the very law of Moses to refute the enemy's argument, but he knew that they would not give in because their standard of judgment was not honest. They evaluated things on the basis of superficial examination of the facts. The judge on the basis of, quote, seems and not is, that's how they judged. Unfortunately, too many people make that same mistake today. John 7, 24 is the opposite of verse 17. Where Jesus called for sincere devotion to truth. The residents of Jerusalem entered the conversation. They knew that the rulers wanted to kill Jesus, and they were amazed that he was teaching openly and getting away with it. Perhaps the rulers had been convinced that indeed he is the Messiah sent from God. Then why were they not worshiping him and leading others to worship him? Their question in John 7:25 suggested a negative answer. When it said, no, the rulers do not believe that he is the Christ, do they? They were able to defend their conclusion with logic. Number one, nobody knows where the Christ comes from. Number two, we know where Jesus of Nazareth came from. And number three, their conclusion, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. Once again, the people could not see the truth because they were blinded by what they thought were dependable facts. So Jesus had met the same kind of resistance in the synagogue at Capernaum. John 6, 42. Even the learned teachers, the expert builders, would not be able to identify the chief cornerstone, even though they had studied the God-given blueprints for centuries. See Acts 4.11. At this point, our Lord raised his voice so that everybody could hear. Note also in John 7.37, he was probably speaking in a tone revealing irony. Yes, you think you know me and where I come from, but really you do not 
Then he explained why they did not know him. They did not know the father. This was a serious accusation to make against an Orthodox Jew. For the Jews prided themselves in knowing the true God, the God of Israel. But Jesus went even further. He boldly asserted that he not only knew the Father, but he was sent by the Father. He was once again claiming to be God. He was not simply born into this world like any other human. He was sent to earth by the Father. This means that he existed before he was born on the earth. This was certainly a crisis hour in his ministry, and some of the leaders tried to have him arrested, but his hour was not yet come, the Bible said. Many of the pilgrims put their faith in him. It was a faith based on miracles, but at least it was a beginning. See John 2, 23, 6, verse 2, and verse 26. Nicodemus first came interested in Jesus because of his miracles. And eventually he openly professed faith in Christ. The Pharisees and chief priests who presided over the Jewish religious establishment resented the fact that the people were trusting in Jesus. Apparently these, quote, believers were not afraid to tell what they had done. See John 7, 13 and verse 32. This time, the rulers sent members of the temple guard to arrest Jesus, but it was Jesus who arrested them. He warned them that they had but a, quote, a little while to hear the truth, believe and be saved. See John 12, 35. It was not Jesus who was in danger, but those who wanted to arrest him. As in previous messages, the people misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And within six months, Jesus would go back to the Father in heaven, and the unsaved Jews would not be able to follow him. What a contrast between where I am, there ye cannot come, as it says in John 7:34, and that where I am, there ye may be also in John 14 and 3. Had these men been willing to do God's will? They would have known the truth. Soon it would be too late. The end of the feast in chapter 7, verses 37 through 52, the last day of the feast would be the seventh day, the very special day on which the priests would march seven times around the altar, chanting Psalms 118, verse 25. It would be the last time they would draw the water and pour it out. No doubt, just as they were pouring out the water, that water being symbolic of the water Moses drew out from the rock, Jesus stood and shouted his great invitation to thirsty sinners. It has been pointed out that this, quote, great day, the 21st of the seventh month, is the same date on which the prophet Haggai made a special prediction about the temple in Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. While the ultimate fulfillment must await the return of Christ to this earth, 
Certainly there was a partial fulfillment when Jesus came to the temple. Haggai chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 is quoted in Hebrews 12 verses 26 through 29 as applying to the return of the Lord. Jesus was referring to the experience of Israel recorded in Exodus 17. That water was but a picture of the Spirit of God. Believers would not only drink the living water, but they would become channels of living water to bless a thirsty world. The artesian well that he promised in John 4.14 has now become a flowing river. While there are no specific prophetic scriptures that indicate rivers of water, quote, rivers of water flowing from the believer, there are a number of verses that parallel this thought in Isaiah. Also in Zechariah, note that Zechariah 14 verse 16 speaks about the future Feast of Tabernacles. When the Lord is king, water for drinking is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. Water was washing is water for washing is a symbol of the word of God. See Romans 15 verse 3 and Ephesians 5 verse 26. Just as water satisfies thirst, and produces fruitfulness, so the Spirit of God satisfies the inner person and enables us to bear fruit. At the feast, the Jews were reenacting a tradition that could never satisfy the heart. Jesus offered them living water and eternal satisfaction. What was the result of this declaration and invitation? The people were divided. Some defended him, and some wanted to arrest him. Is he a good man or a deceiver? See John 7, 12. Is he the Christ? Is he the promised prophet? If only they had honestly examined the evidence, they would have discovered that indeed he was the Christ, the Son of God. They identified Jesus with, with Galilee. See John 1, 45 and 46. Also chapter 7, verse 52. When in reality he was born in Bethlehem. See John 6, 42. The temple officers returned to the Jewish council, meeting empty-handed. It certainly should have been relatively easy for them to arrest Jesus, yet they failed to do so. What stopped them? Never man spake like this man was their defense. In other words, this Jesus is more than a man. No mere man speaks as he does. They were, quote, arrested by the word of God spoken by the Son of God. Again, the leaders refused to face facts honestly, but passed judgment on the basis of their prejudices and their superficial examination of the facts. It's much easier to label people than to listen to the facts they present. Some of the people have believed on Jesus. So what? 
These common people know nothing about the law anyway. Have any important people like ourselves believed on him? Of course not. They would use a similar argument to discredit the witness of the blind man that Jesus healed in John 9:34. We should not be surprised when the quote the intelligentus refuses to trust Jesus Christ or when religious leaders reject him. God has hidden his truth from quote the wise and prudent the bible says and revealed it to spiritual babes the humble people who will yield to him see matthew 11:25 through 27 paul was a very intelligent rabbi when god saved him yet he had to be quote knocked down before he would acknowledge that jesus christ was the resurrected son of god Read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 to learn Paul's explanation for the difficulty of winning smart religious people to the Savior. No doubt the rulers would have sent the guard out again, but Nicodemus, Nicodemus spoke up. This man is found three times in John's gospel, and each time he is identified as the one who came to Jesus by night. No doubt Nicodemus had been doing a great deal of thinking and studying since that first interview with Jesus, and he was not afraid to take his stand for truth. Nicodemus was sure that the council was not giving Jesus an honest hearing. The rulers had already passed judgment and were trying to arrest him before he had even been given a fair and lawful trial. Nicodemus had in mind such Old Testament scriptures as Exodus 23 verse 1 and Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 19. What did Nicodemus want them to consider about Jesus? His word and his works? It was Jesus the teacher and the miracle worker who had attracted Nicodemus's interest in the first place. In fact, Jesus had pointed to his works as proof of his deity in John 5.32, and he repeatedly urged the people to pay attention to his words. The two go together, for the miracles point to the message, and the messages interpret the spiritual meaning of the miracles. You can hear the sarcasm and disdain in the reply of the rulers. As they said, are you a lowly and despised Galilean too? They refused to admit that Nicodemus was right in asking for a fair trial. But the only way they could answer him was by means of ridicule. This is an an ancient debate trick. When you cannot answer the argument, attack the speaker. They challenged Nicodemus to search the prophecies to see if he could find any statement that a prophet would come out of Galilee. Of course, Jonah was from Galilee, and Jesus said that Jonah was a picture of himself in death, burial, and resurrection. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Perhaps Nicodemus, perhaps, 
Nicodemus read Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. See Matthew 4, 12 through 16, and begin to trace the great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. If he did, then he became convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was the very Son of God. You cannot help but feel sorry for the people described in this chapter, people who responded to Jesus in the wrong ways. His half-brothers responded with disbelief. Various people responded with debate. And the result was division. Had they willingly received the truth, and had they acted with sincere obedience, they would have ended up at the feet of Jesus, confessing him as Messiah and Son of God. But people today commit the same blunder and permit their prejudices and superficial evaluations to blind them to the truth. In closing, let me say, don't let it happen to you.